Luke chapter 14, verse number 25. The Bible says, And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, cannot he cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for the midweek prayer meeting. Lord, thank you that we can come in the middle of our week and gather together and have fellowship one with another, Lord, and worship you and gain encouragement. Lord, sing songs that exalt you and that soothe our hearts. And Lord, enjoy the fellowship we have with fellow believers. And Lord, to top it all off, to get together around your word and to gain encouragement and instruction and challenge from it. Now, Lord, we've mentioned these prayer requests tonight, and certainly time and my memory would fail me to mention them all again. But, Lord, I, I know that you heard every one of them. And Lord, there are several cards mention uh, unsaved people that we know, that we love, whose lives you have intersected with ours, Lord, and you've given us opportunity to be a, a witness to them and opportunity to make an impact in their life. Lord, I pray you'd help us to be faithful. I pray you'd help us to be diligent. And I pray you'd help us to be vigilant, Lord, that we might always seek an opportunity, Lord, that we might speak a word, a fit word in season that might be able to be used by you to make an impact in their hearts and lives in sharing the gospel with them, in, in pointing and seeking to turn them from their unrighteousness to the righteousness of Christ, which is our only hope. Lord, I pray that you also would work in their lives, Lord, even apart from us. I pray that you'd send people that they might minister in their lives. Lord, I don't pray any ill situation upon anyone. And, and God, I know that I can trust you with these loved ones, Lord, that you love them more than I do. And you won't do anything that's not absolutely necessary in getting their attention. But God, I do desire that you'd work in their lives. Lord, I do know that you'll do perfectly in that process. So I pray that you would get their attention, work in their lives, make yourself known to them, Lord. If they don't know you, all is for naught anyway. So, Lord, I pray that you'd work in their lives. Many other requests were mentioned, Lord, and, and, and they're all important. Father, I pray that you would answer them according to your will, that you'd show yourself mighty in it. Lord, we'll be sure to praise you and thank you for what you've done and will do. Bless the preaching tonight. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. Here in Luke chapter 14, we find a fascinating interaction between the Lord Jesus and a group of people that the Bible describes as a multitude in verse 25. And I don't know if it strikes you, but when I read verse 25, there went great multitudes with them, and he turned and said unto them, I'm struck by how different the Lord's attitude about crowds was versus modern Christianity's attitude. 
It's interesting to me because, you know, most preachers and pastors and, and people that are seeking to have an entrance in people's lives would have turned around and said anything it would have taken to try to keep them coming with him. But instead, the Lord Jesus turns around and he does not tell them a happy truth. He tells them a hard truth. He doesn't turn around and tell them a comfortable truth, but he tells them uncomfortable truths. He doesn't turn around and try to soothe them or, or draw them in, but instead he draws a line in the sand and he says, if you're going to follow me, here's what following me looks like. And he launches into what is, and I don't think I'm, I'm incorrect or, or, or ungenerous in saying it this way, what is undoubtedly one of the most severe descriptions of the life of discipleship that you'll find in the entirety of the Word of God. Didn't come from the thunderous prophet Elijah. Didn't come from Moses who had been on Mount Sinai. Didn't come from any of the other Old Testament prophets who had seen fire and brimstone and destruction and the day of the Lord coming. But rather from the tender lips of the Lord Jesus, he turns around and tells them that they, if they're going to follow him, are going to have to make some hard decisions in their life to be able to. And I'll tell you how radically different this is from so much of modern day Christianity. He sets forth for them principles of discipleship in their life. The word discipleship is interesting. It's taken on all sorts of connotations in modern Christianity. And I don't think necessarily they're all altogether bad or that we necessarily have to constantly uh, beat people over the head for the way that they use terminology and words in, in things. If people want to talk about teaching new Christians about baptism and things like that, discipleship, that's fine. That doesn't offend me. I don't think that's the biggest issue we're facing in, in modern-day Christianity. But discipleship is not merely being initiated into the fundamental truths of Christianity. Discipleship is not a class that you go through and graduate from. Discipleship is not just building blocks of going to church. Discipleship is rather an entire lifetime of devotion to Christ and what that entails. See, the truth is, you're never, you may go through a discipleship class and graduate from it, but you ain't never going to graduate from being a disciple of Jesus Christ. You'll never outgrow a life of discipleship. Uh, we're blessed. One of my favorite ministries that we've got going on is our seniors ministry. And I get to be there most weeks and I enjoy it. I love the singing. I love the testimony and, and I enjoy being over there. And I love the way that God moves and works. And, you know, it doesn't matter. Listen, it doesn't matter if it's one of these little ones in the nursery all the way up to those in the seniors class. There'll never be a time when they get too old for discipleship. You're always going to be called to this life of serving the Lord, of putting self aside, and of allowing Him to have the governance of your life. So the Lord looks at this crowd, and he, he lists three things. I don't really want to preach on the first two. I just want to give them to you by way of introduction. But look at verse 26. We have the prerequisite for discipleship. He says this, If any man come to me, and hate not his father, and mother, and wife, and children, and brethren, and sisters... Yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. It's an interesting verse because the first thing that most people do when they read it is immediately begin to try to soften it. Now, they'll say things like this. Well, the hate that's described here is a relative hate. It is a comparative hate. And I agree with that. 
I don't believe the Bible's teaching us to have disdain or resentment towards any of these individuals or even towards our own life also. And I don't think it's wrong to understand this in the strict biblical interpretation as being a comparative or relative statement. But can I remind you that Christ did not give this statement in this way for softness, but deliberately for the purpose of severity. He didn't say this to then qualify it. He said this so that you might be struck like a thunderbolt at the seriousness of what a life of discipleship means. I don't think, again, it's wrong to understand this in its proper context. I think context is king. But I will just simply say this. He's wanting to get them to realize that the life of discipleship is not a casual or superficial life. It is, we might say, a life in which everything else is judged by and put in the perspective of this singular purpose, which is being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Why does he communicate it this way? Because he wants you to understand that when you become a disciple of Jesus Christ, it changes how you view and value everything else. It's not so much that he is just merely wanting to say you'll have to spurn some of these things in your life, He's wanting you to understand how radical is this commitment that he is calling you to. It's not a Sunday morning or Sunday night or even Wednesday night only type of life. It's not a revival meeting type of life. It's not a Sunday school type of life. It's an every waking moment of our life type of life. And it becomes the anchor point by which everything else is situated and adjusted. One of the things that is crippling Christianity today, and I say it all the time, you're probably sick of hearing it, and I'm, I'm sick of saying it, but the world ain't getting no better, so I'll keep saying it, is that we have this attitude about Christianity that we, that it's somehow a part, a component of our life that can be, that can be fit in, plugged in, situated in, and penciled in to our greater and broader interests and purposes and goals. And that was never the type of life that Jesus Christ offered to his disciples and to his followers. It was always Christ first and then everything else. It was always this is the heartbeat and everything else comes after this. And so in this prerequisite, he is almost trying to shock them. He's almost trying to strike them with the severity of how serious this life truly, truly is. We see the prerequisite of discipleship in verse 27 We see the process of discipleship. He says, and whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's interesting to me as you read this to try to hear this the way they would have heard it. Because we interpret this in light of Calvary. And I don't think that's inappropriate to do, mind you. Of course, everything is to be understood in light of Calvary. But when they heard it, there hadn't been a Calvary. And when they heard it, they would not have in any way associated this with the idea of of somehow uh, seeing themselves as associated with Christ in his death on the cross of Calvary. Now, again, those two ideas are intertwined, and I don't mean to suggest that 
One can't even live without the other one. I recognize that I can only be a disciple of Jesus Christ because I've positionally been put in the place of Christ and He in my place. None of that's lost on me. The great sweeping uh, doctrine of justification is not lost on me. But I'm just struck by the fact that when they heard this, they wouldn't have thought of any of that. They would have thought merely about that cross that Romans would hang criminals on. And to them, they would have associated it with one principle and one alone. And it would have been simply death. Execution. And whenever he says you've got to bear your cross, we think of it in terms of Simon uh, carrying the cross with Jesus. And again, I'm not saying there's not an application. But they would have thought of one thing. They would have thought of climbing on a cross and dying the death of an execution. It's interesting because a cross is not where people die incidentally. It's a place where they die deliberately, intentionally. It's not a place where you normally put yourself on to die, but it's a place where another puts you on and puts you to death. And what he's speaking of is a deliberate life of putting self aside, mortifying self. He has in this, listen, we're not going to be a disciple as long as we're the most important thing to us. (laughs) I remember they used to call the generation, I don't really know all, people talk about generations and they give them labels and they give them names, they give them all these things, none of that really matters. Uh, everybody's just, all of society's gross and wicked. There you go. No matter your age. It's just the way it is. But they called the 80s the me generation, didn't they? It was all about me, all about me, all about me, all about what I want and what I desire. And, you know, much of that same spirit and attitude prevails even today. And that's a lot of, listen, you can't have moral relativism in a society that's not obsessively narcissistic. You have to be obsessed with yourself to believe in moral relativism. Because everything that's relative has an anchor point from which it's judged. It's relative to something. And so if you're going to have moral relativism in a society, the idea of, well, what's right for me and and that's okay and it might be wrong for you, but it's right for me and it might be right for me and it's wrong for you and so on and so forth, can only exist in a supremely self-centered society. What's God's remedy for that? Discipleship. Nailing self to the cross and making it about him and not us. That's the reason John said, hey, listen, he must increase and I must decrease. It's got to be about him. It's got to be about him. It's got to be about him. God is not your marketing agent. He's not your PR consultant. He's not here to help you live your best life or to magnify you. And as long as that is our mentality and perspective, we're missing what this thing's all about. He says this, you've got to bear your cross and then come after me. And I will tell you this, and we'll get in. We got a message to preach here in a second. Don't get nervous. My watch quit working anyway, so it don't matter. I have unlimited time. Amen. Uh, (laughs) You won't come after him until you bear your cross. We think I'll follow him and then I will develop to a place of spiritual apex in which I can then bear my cross. But that, once again, is the wrong perspective. It's not I'll become a super Christian and then I can put self aside. It's that you won't become the Christian you're supposed to be until you first put self aside. I'll just go ahead and tell it to you. There'll never be an easy time to do it. There'll never be a time when you'll sit there and say, well, now it feels like the right time. Your flesh will make sure it's never the right time. The devil will make sure it's never the right time. The world will make sure it's never the right time. 
And it's something that merely has to be a choice, a determination of will that you say, I'm not going to live for me anymore, I'm going to live for him. We put ourselves to the side, we mortify self, then we come after him. And you say, well, preacher, then we have become a disciple. No, that's what you got to do before you ever become a disciple. That's not the end of the life of discipleship, that's the beginning of the life of discipleship. In verse 28 down to the end of our text, he gives three principles of discipleship. And he tells them to us by way of illustration. I'm going to hurry, but I want you to notice them with me tonight. You say, okay, preacher, the prerequisite, right? This, this, this is, I've got to spurn everything else where at least I must love him in such a way that everything else becomes less meaningful, less relevant. Now do this by mortifying self and following after him. What then will that lead to? What will that look like? In my life. Notice these three principles and we're done. Look at verse 28. The Bible says this. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Three principles of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. The first one is this. It's counting the cost. I'm going to give you this word to go along with it. Soberness. Soberness. You've got to recognize the seriousness of your calling and the seriousness of the potential of your life if you will put your life under the yoke of Jesus Christ. Notice uh, some features about this description of this man building a tower. Notice first off the careful forethought that is required. See, this man is being described as a fool for one simple reason, because he did not sit down and figure out what it was really going to cost him. He rushed in at the idea of having a tower without ever considering what it would take to build a tower. This could maybe be used to describe all of modern day Christianity in the West. I want to be a Christian. Do you know what that means? So much so that being a Christian and Christianity has been so so ill-defined in our society today that now we're moving into a space where it can mean anything. You think I'm lying? Look on social media. Every bit of uh, every degeneracy in society, there's someone that calls that Christianity. I was seeing an article this past week and just by accident, because that's about the only way I see the news anymore is just by accident. Amen. Sometimes you can't get away from it. Where a Catholic diocese, and that's both of those are unbiblical words, where a Catholic diocese in New York City, which isn't unbiblical, but it is ungodly, uh, the, <laughs> put, put out a, a, um, I don't know what you'd call it, a piece of art is what they called it. Trash is what I'd call it. Uh, that, that was, uh, presenting the idea that God is trans. And you know, that's disgusting, obviously, and all those things. And they mean it, that the intention is to flaunt their debaucheracy and degeneracy in your face. But there's people that call that Christianity. There's people that call that Christianity. That's how loose the term Christian has become in our society today. Everywhere that you turn, and I I could waste the whole rest of my time just giving example after example, but everywhere you turn, what you have is this idea of a label of Christianity completely gutted of the life of Christianity. 
It has been reduced in a, in a society that is, that is drunk on identity politics and sectarianism and the idea of putting people in a little box with a label to make them convenient to control. In that society, Christianity has been reduced to nothing more than just a superficial label. And Christ is saying, if you're going to be my disciple, you better know what being my disciple looks like. Preacher, what does it look like? Well, it looks like consecration. It looks like holiness. It looks like being inconvenienced for the sake of the Lord. It looks it looks like prioritizing church and his word and the things of God above all of the other interests that we have. That's what it looks like. Whatever we define as Christianity, it's not discipleship if it doesn't look like that. Because looking like like Bible Christianity involves a Christianity that consumes your life and doesn't cohabitate with it. One that marches straight into the center of your world and plants the flag of Jesus Christ right into your heart and says, this is his. I see the careful forethought that's required. I see the awful failure that's risked in verse 29. What's the danger if a person doesn't do this? Well, here's what will happen. Lest happily, after you have laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, he'll start and then quit. A lot of people's Christianity could be described as starting and quitting. Starting and quitting. I didn't say starting and failing. I said starting and quitting. We all fail. We all mess up. We all make mistakes. But a great many people's Christianity, really, it doesn't align very much with New Testament, but it looks a lot like the book of Judges of just starting and then quitting. And then starting and then quitting. And the great danger is this. We think because we have a merciful God who is long-suffering that our quitting has no consequences. But I want you to understand, and Christ wanted you to understand, that the most tragic thing that could happen to this man is not that someone come along and take his life. It's not that he fall into poverty while seeking to build this tower. It's not that someone come along and steal the tower away. The most tragic thing that could happen to this man would be after he started that he just quit. And I'll tell you, the great danger in our life, if we don't realize what being a, a disciple of Jesus Christ look like looks like, we'll start. And then the moment we actually have to prioritize Christ and we must choose between self and him because we've not mortified self because we were not aware that was anything to do with the deal of being a Christian and being a disciple of Jesus Christ, we instinctively choose the flesh over him because we will always instinctively choose the flesh over him. That's why we have to mortify self. Because self is never going to stop and hold the door for Jesus. We're always going to have to mortify self because it will always fight tooth and toenail for the governance and throne of your heart. I see the awful failure that's risked, but then I see the shameful folly that's resulting. The Bible says, verse 29, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. In other words, his testimony would not be that he began, it'd be that he quit. Here's a harsh truth about life. People don't care what you begin. They care what you finish. You can fail a lot on the way, but if you quit, that's what people remember. If you quit, if you give up, that's what people remember. And everything else you ever did won't matter much. If you go, people that finish the tower, nobody ever remembers the mistakes they made in the process. 
Nobody ever remembers the stones that were miscut. Nobody ever remembers the tasks that had to be redone. All they do is see a finished tower. And they say, there's a man that finished something. But when you walk by an unfinished tower, all you can ever think is somebody quit. <laughs> uh, there, there's a church not far from here. and This isn't an indictment on this church in any way. I'm using it as an example. But uh, And some of you all know the church I'm talking about when I, when I mention it. Uh, but years ago, they had started the church and they, had, they, they were building a new building and they had started with a basement. And the idea was they was going to build an upstairs afterwards. And they never got around to building an upstairs afterwards. And so what you really have is a basement with a roof on it. <laughs> and uh, I'm not criticizing that church. There could be a hundred reasons they were never able to do that. I'm, but every time I drive by it, I'm reminded of an unfinished work. And again, no indictment on them personally as a church. They may have done the very best they could. But there's a there's an analogy there, you understand. That every time you drive by, you don't notice what was built. You notice what wasn't. And in your life, listen, the great danger is that people look at your life and see you, that you quit. And now you say, well, now, preacher, that's not the worst thing in the world. The world's full of quitters, and that's true. (laughs) But here's what they'll decide. They'll decide that Jesus was worth quitting on, that he wasn't worth sticking in for. I see the first principle. It's counting the cost. It deals with soberness. And then look at the next illustration the Lord gives. He says this, or what king? Going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first and consulteth, whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand. Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. I would say the second principle of discipleship is not just counting the cost, but it's waving the white flag. Now you're going to say, wait a minute, preacher. You just told me I'm to never quit. That's true. You'd never quit being a disciple. But here's what the Lord's trying to communicate, that you have enemies. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you put your faith in him, been born again, you have enemies to the progress of your life, but it ain't him. And the best thing you'll ever do is learn to surrender to him. In fact, I'll tell you this, discipleship cannot exist without surrendering to him. You've got to surrender your life to him. Notice three things here. I see, number one, the counting of forces. He describes this king as having 10,000 and going out to meet a man that has 20,000. And here's the wisdom of what this man does is he recognizes that he is in a fight he can't win. And he'd rather be on the winning side, even if that means surrendering. The illustration Christ is communicating is recognizing that when we endeavor to live the life of discipleship in our own strength and our own energy and to do it in our own righteousness, we're engaging In a fight that we cannot win. And the best thing we can do is seek terms with a heavenly king. That can enable us to live the life that he's called us to. He counts his forces. And then I see the cautious foresight that he has. I like this. Or else while the other is yet a great way off. Ancient warfare is fascinating. I love to read it and study it. And and, you know a a lot of warfare. I don't know if you realize this. But a lot of warfare in the ancient world. Campaigning was really just a bunch of dudes marching around in the wilderness hoping to bump into each other. Because they didn't have cell phones, they didn't have satellite. And so they'd go out and they'd just walk around up and down roads hoping to find whatever army that they were going to fight. They were out campaigning on the open road. And, you know, one of the things that was lacking in uh, ancient warfare is communication. They had all sorts of 
uh, you know, uh, smart and, and, you know, in, in, uh, well, I'll get a word out here in a second, intuitive, uh, ways of communicating with each other. And that's part of the reason they had battle standards and different things. They blow trumpets. Because on a battlefield, you couldn't really cry out and expect to be heard because of the din and rumble of battle. And here's where this man is wise. He has cautious foresight because he recognizes if he waits to surrender, he might wait till it's too late and he's not able to surrender anymore. If he lets that king march his troops all the way up that road to his gates, and he decides at the last second to cry out and surrender, he may not be heard and it may be too late after all. So here's what he decides. He's not going to wait until the very last second. He's going to surrender the moment he knows he cannot win the war. I'm thankful to God that I was saved as a 10-year-old boy. I wish I was saved as a 5-year-old. I don't know what I did that five years, but I'm sure I'll get to heaven and feel bad about it. Amen. I think the greatest thing you can do as a uh, disciple of Jesus Christ is learn to surrender to him quickly. Don't wait. Don't wait, because you might wait till it's too late. We often say that to lost people about dying in their sins, and that's true. There's a great danger there. But I will tell you this, I don't, I, you know, I know I'm not going to die in my sins, but I don't want to die in my shame either. I don't want to die with a life that's filthy and, and rebellious and stubborn and bowed up against God and, and steeped and, and, and stifled by self-righteousness. I, I like, I see his cautious foresight. He doesn't wait till the last second. He does it when he's a great way off. And the Bible says this, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. I see his complete forfeit. And he said, wait a minute, preacher, don't say he completely forfeit. Where, where do you get that? Uh, because he's outnumbered two to one. That's how I know that. <laughs> when you have as poor a numbers as this guy has, you don't come to negotiate. You come to lay down your arms. And I'll tell you this, in this matter of discipleship, in both surrendering our will to the Lord's will, his will will be done. And if I'll make my will his will, my will will be done too. And I would a lot rather surrender my will to his will than my will be at odds with his will. And then when it comes to the matter of endeavoring to do this through the strength of my own discipline or flesh or energy or self-righteousness, I will tell you this, if I'm going to be the disciple that I need to be for Jesus Christ, it's going to take complete and total surrender. I've got to say, Lord, I'm yours and I'm not mine. I see this three principles counting the cost, waving the white flag. And then there's a last one. It almost feels uh, like an addendum to the rest of the passage. But of course, it's not the Lord Jesus in the same breath spoke this. And we don't have his traditional close of a of a discourse. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear until verse thirty five. So this likewise is intended as a part of this uh, of this conversation. And he says this in verse thirty four. Salt is good. And I say amen to that. But if the salt have lost his savor. Wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. The first principle is counting the cost. It deals with soberness. The second is waving the white flag. It deals with surrender. But then, some of y'all are going to like this. You're going, you're going to think you agree with what I'm preaching before I preach it. Uh, some of, uh, this last one's sustaining your saltiness. Amen. Some of y'all said, amen, I can do that, preacher. Amen. But it deals with the idea of sanctification, consecration, 
being different. There's never been a disciple that fit in. There's never been a, a real disciple of Jesus Christ that fit into their surroundings and into their environment. That doesn't mean we ought to be weird for the sake of weirdness. But it does mean that we ought to recognize that the distinctiveness of discipleship is is a feature and not a bug of what the life of being a disciple is. Notice three simple things here. He's saying this. Number one, we should be desired like salt. I like this phrase. Salt is good. What does he mean in, in this sense? You understand salt was used for a whole myriad of things in the ancient world. And at the time that Christ speaks these words, salt is really almost akin to what we would describe like a commodity or a precious metal even today. Governments did business in salt at that time. And the old uh, statement, worth your weight in salt or worth your salt, is rooted in this period of history in which salt was reckoned in some places at some times as more valuable than even gold itself. So when he says salt is good, what he's saying is this. Here is a universally accepted truth that salt is valuable. Salt is good. Salt is rich. Salt is sought after. But why is that salt valuable? Well, he says in the next phrase that we should be desired like salt, but we can be destroyed like salt is destroyed. He says this, but if the salt have lost his savor, Wherewith shall it be seasoned? In other words, the value in salt is in the distinctiveness of its flavor and its ability to impart that distinctiveness to whatever context it is placed in. He's describing salt that can be used in a myriad of ways, but here he's describing it as being used as a seasoning added to food. And he's saying the whole reason it exists is because it tastes different than what it's put on. And it changes the nature of what it is put on. If it doesn't do those things, then it's effectively been destroyed. I want you to listen to me. Your Christianity has been destroyed if it's been made to look like world, like the world, like worldliness. It it no longer does what Christianity is supposed to do. Note, I didn't say your salvation's lost. I didn't say you've, you've fallen from grace. I didn't say whatever nomenclature that you might associate with the idea of losing your salvation. What I said is your Christianity, in other words, your testimony and the unique character of your life as a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've made it to look like the world, it's been destroyed. You can't assimilate it into the world system without destroying it. This is something that modern Christianity doesn't just miss. They cast away with reckless abandon and redefine the very terms of what being a Christian is in in, in endeavoring to make Christianity like worldliness. But to do so is to literally destroy what Christianity is fit for in the first place. It says in verse number 35, and I like this phrase, it's neither fit. I like that phrase. It's not fit. It's not worthy anymore. What's it not worthy of? It's neither fit for the land. In other words, it it, it cannot be used throughout the land. It doesn't brighten anyone's day. It doesn't bless anyone's table. It doesn't enrich anyone's food. There's no living use for it. Then he says this, nor yet for the dunghill. In other words, it can't even be used in the composting process. It's not fit in life and it's not fit in death. It can't be used in either. 
You know what is just so tragic about compromised Christianity? Is God can't get glory out of it by you living in it or by you dying in it. It won't be through ministry or martyrdom that he can get any glory out of compromised cultural Christianity. Casual Christianity doesn't bless him when you live it. And he can't get any blessing out of it if you die in it. It's neither fit for the land or for life, nor yet for the dunghill or for death. But what do men do? Men cast it out. In other words, it just becomes part of the landscape. It's cast out onto the ground. It becomes like any other dirt. Not unique, not proprietary, not hallowed, not sacred. Certainly not valuable or meaningful. But it just becomes a part of the landscape. Can I tell you what Christianity will look like after the rapture of the church? It'll look like part of the landscape. Oh, there'll still be churches. Some of them will grow. (laughs) After they get all the Christians out of the way that want revival, they'll be able to finally start instituting all their social programs. And they'll grow numerically. But it'll just be part of the landscape. Just be part of everything else. Can I tell you what you're... mm, uh, Let me tell you what I'm saying to you right now. I'm saying to me too. So don't get upset at me. But can I tell you what your or my cultural Christianity is to our coworkers? It's just part of the landscape. It's unimportant. It's not interesting. It's not powerful. It's not potent. It doesn't change anything. Can I tell you what cultural Christianity is to your neighbors and your family? It's just part of the landscape. We've joked before. We we bought our house, I don't know how many years ago it is now, probably six or seven or something. I don't, I don't know. It feels like a long time. We still have boxes we're unpacking. Now, let me give you some encouragement and hope, those of you all that just moved. And you say, Preacher, I'm I'm never we're never gonna get unpacked. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's true. And you know what happens after a while? It just becomes part of the landscape. You don't even see it anymore. You just imagine that when they built this house, they put a U-Haul box right in the middle of that floor. And that was part of the intended interior design. And you just don't notice it anymore. And you learn to just cohabitate with this box sitting in this place without it ever really changing anything about the way you live. And you know, that's what happens to cultural Christianity. It assimilates into the world system, becomes irrelevant and unimportant. And the devil's not threatened by it. And the world's not changed by it. And sinners aren't intrigued by it. And it just sort of exists and nothing else. And the salt loses its savor. And it just becomes unimportant. No, that's not what God wants for us. He wants us to live a life of true discipleship. And here's what it's going to take. The first step is going to be bearing our cross and coming after him. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. I have preached my message. I'm not going to ask you a hundred questions. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you the altar's open. And if God spoke to you about something, it must be important because he wouldn't do that for no reason. So if God dealt with you, would you take him serious enough to meet him down here and deal with him tonight? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.